But are you a disciple? That's the question I want you to think about this morning. Are, are you a disciple? And that question, I'm hoping the Holy Spirit will really challenge you to answer for yourself. Uh, today's message comes from the book of Acts, chapter 11. And uh, before we start reading from Acts chapter 11, I really want to share some of the, the backstory. If you remember, Stephen is Christianity's first martyr. And after Stephen was martyred, uh, persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And once that persecution broke out, the church scattered and went to the regions outside of Judea, kind of resettled in those locations. And uh, many of those who fled uh, found themselves in Jewish uh, communities throughout the region and uh, outside of, of Judea. And some of those who fled went to Antioch. What they started doing in those places that they fled to is they began preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel. So persecution worked in this fashion, uh, and negatively, obviously, that uh, no one wants to be persecuted, but we understand that can happen by becoming a Christian. But God used that persecution to spread the gospel because those Jews left Judea and Jerusalem, they went out to these other regions, settled in Jewish communities, and then began to share the gospel. And as the church began to scatter outside of Judea, uh, the high priest noticed this, that, you know, that this only uh, made the matters worse, that now there are Christians popping up in all these different Jewish communities uh, throughout the region. So he sends a gentleman out by the name of Saul, which we know becomes Paul. And Paul is sent to Damascus for the purpose of finding Christians, finding disciples of Jesus. Paul had the authority then to arrest those people bring them back to Jerusalem, and they would stand trial before the Sanhedrin. And if you know anything about the book of Acts, uh, later on when Paul is recounting this story, he is not only responsible for the death of Stephen, but many Christians, because uh, this wasn't his first trip. This wasn't his only time going to arrest Christians. He is responsible for the death of Christians. So on that road to Damascus, he has an encounter with Jesus, and then Paul also becomes a follower of Christ. So the scripture I'm sharing with you to, uh, this morning is what takes place after Stephen's martyrdom and Paul's conversion. So let's look at Acts chapter 11, verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word of God to no one but, only, but the Jews only. But some of them were from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, that term Hellenist, if you're, not, if you're not familiar with it, it's not someone who's a hell raiser, okay? Uh, a Hellenist is a person who would embrace Greek culture. So if you remember, the, the empire is Rome, the, the, the empire is Roman, but the culture within the empire was Greek. It was Hellenistic. And so Hellenists, the Hellenists were Jews who embraced Greek culture, if you, Hellenistic Jews. And if you see the term in Acts, Hebraic, the Hebraic Jews, the, Jews, the Hebrew Jews, are those who re rejected Greek culture. So Acts eleven twenty one. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number turned to the Lord. So a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now, for whatever reason... As these Jews scattered into these communities by the persecution that sent them there, the message that they preached and shared appealed to the Hellenistic Jews. So these people were already, now think about this, I don't think we have a really good appreciation for what we're reading here. 
So the Jews that lived outside of uh, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, these, these people faced persecution within those, those territories by the Romans. But these Jews that lived outside of that, that area, that lived in areas like uh, Antioch, which Antioch, if you, if you know where it's at on the map, it's really inside of Turkey on the Syrian-Lebanese border. Antioch is one of those communities that had a large Jewish population. And in that community, they were uh, a minority. Uh, they, were, they were looked upon poorly. They were treated poorly because of their, their race, their religion, and their cultural practices. And, you know, the Jews were different from the Gentiles. Uh, number one, they had one God, which seemed odd to the Gentiles, non-Jews. And also, the Jews had beliefs and practices that really rubbed Gentiles the wrong way. So these Jews who converted to Christianity outside of Judea, outside of Galilee, they were already a minority, marginalized, and then to top it off within their own community, these people would not be respected for believing and following Jesus Christ as their Lord. So I don't really think we, we appreciate the gravity of that decision because you know why we live in a community where we're not, we're not uh, polarized, we're not rejected, we're not persecuted because we're Christians. In fact, if you're not a Christian in our community, you're probably looked upon differently. Like, what's wrong with you? The norm within our community is Christianity. So I don't think we could really, really quite understand the commitment that these people make to Christ. And I would just say this, when we look at these people who, who encounter Jesus, they're, they're really selling out. They're, they're, they have all this opposition, but yet they make this commitment to Christ. And I would just say this, just because we don't have persecution doesn't mean that we shouldn't have the same commitment. These folks were, were persecuted and they had a deep faith and a commitment to Jesus. And even though we don't face that ourselves, that shouldn't change our commitment. We should have the same commitment to Jesus as these followers. If you're born again, Jesus should have made an indelible impression upon your lives. And there are people in our community who attend church, identify as Christian, call Jesus their Savior, but have not committed themselves to Jesus as their Lord. And to make matters worse, we have preachers who share a compromised gospel that nullifies the need for repentance and cheapens the grace of God. And I don't know if these people who share a compromised gospel do so out of ignorance, tradition, or just deceit, but I can't understand how anyone who reads the Bible, preaches the Bible, can ignore these words. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you follow that terminology there, it's not that Jesus preached that message once and he was done. That was a continual theme. He began to preach and teach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So why is it that Jesus preached repentance, but we as the church today leave that phrase out? We leave that we leave that admonition out of the word of God. I don't know why it is when we present the gospel, we don't call people to repentance. If we present the gospel without repentance, and let's face it, to an already religious community who already believes they are saved, aren't we really hindering those people from becoming born again? There are people in our community who believe in Jesus, and their faith is based really on what's up here. 
I, I believe what the Word of God says. I, have a, I, I read the Bible. I've heard the Bible. I understand it, and I believe it. And that's what they call Christianity. That's what they call faith. And then we cheapen it by saying, that's, that's good. That's all you got to do. Just believe. Just believe. Jesus will forgive your sins. No need to repent. You know, I look at this verse in James 2.19. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even demons believe and tremble. You know, at least demons have a response. They, they have a response in their belief. They believe and they tremble. But we have people, not only in our community, but also in our church, there are people who believe that Jesus is some kind of spiritual Santa Claus. That he forgives us of our sin, but he doesn't call us to repentance. My, my job is just to forgive your sins and bless you so you have a good life. Sharing a perverted gospel appeals to the flesh, but it has no power to convert the soul or transform lives. Listen to the words. Think about this. Listen to these words. And who are say, who's saying these words? And it's the Apostle Paul. I want you to think about this. The same Paul who, who went out one day to persecute Christians, to arrest them, to bring them back to Jerusalem, as for them to stand trial, many of them would be killed for their faith. The same Paul who has, has that job, that, that mindset, then encounters Jesus, and he says these words later. Check this out. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Think about who's saying this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Paul once persecuted Christians, but after encountering Jesus... He becomes a champion of the faith. But he is also martyred for his faith. Now, what a, what a dramatic turn of events. How ironic is that? The man who persecuted Christians is he himself martyred. Now, what, what causes a person to have that kind of commitment? Do we have that kind of commitment ourselves? See, religion doesn't do that. Believing in Jesus, just have a, a religion of belief cannot bring that kind of commitment and transformation. People who say Jesus is their Savior, but they don't submit to him as Lord, they don't have that type of commitment. If folks haven't repented of their sins, experienced new birth, and commit themselves to Jesus as Lord, there is no transforming power available in that kind of religion. So here's the question, is Jesus your Savior? Most of us would say yes. Is Jesus your Lord? Yeah, I think most of us would Say yes. But those aren't empty titles. In fact, those aren't just titles. Those are positions. Is he your Savior and is he your Lord? And if he's your Lord, our lives should show forth that, that the dedication or that position that he has in our lives. See, religion can't do that. It has no power to enable a person to so deeply commit themselves to Jesus that they will be persecuted and possibly put to death. Religion doesn't bring a person to separate themselves from sin, from self in this world. It just makes us comfortable thinking that, hey, everything's all right. Let's go on down to verse 22. Then the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And he came and he had seen the grace of God. So he witnesses the grace of God in action. And he was glad, and he encouraged them all. He's encouraging these Christians in Antioch that with the purpose of the heart, they should continue with the Lord. For he, being uh, Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. 
So Barnabas is appointed by the church. He's sent to Antioch. He's kind of the eyes and the ears of the church. There's something going on in Antioch. He's sent there to find out what's taking place. And what does he see? He sees the grace of God in action. He sees people serving Jesus as Lord. Today, if you mention that title, Lord, and if you emphasize lordship, even the church folks, they'll look at you like you got lobsters coming out of your ears. Barnabas sees people living their faith, submitted to Jesus as Lord. See, grace enables us to submit to Christ as Lord. Grace doesn't force us to submit to Christ as Lord. That's not what grace does. If you feel like you're forced to do so, then you haven't, you haven't really encountered the grace of God. You know, I don't love Jenny because I have to. I, I love her because she loves me. What does that do? Does that cause me to be more self-centered or self No, it, it inspires me. It, it creates a desire with me. Try to at least try to keep up with her. And it should do the same thing for you and I. Grace should motivate us, not force us, to live for Jesus, to submit to him as Lord. Grace enables those who are born again with an active willingness, a desire to serve Jesus as Lord. Grace that flows from the heart of God isn't a license to sin. And if we view grace as that way, it's just God's blanket, it's his covering. You can sin all you want, your sins are forgiven, there's no requirement for repentance, there's no requirement for change. That is a perverted view of grace. Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer is clear, certainly not. How shall we who died, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. How can anyone who has genuinely encountered the grace of God continue in sin? Now, does that mean we don't sin, we don't mess? I'm not saying that. I'm not talking about perfection. If we have a genuine encounter with grace, a genuine experience with the Holy Spirit, we should have a genuine desire to live in newness of life. If you didn't catch anything else this morning, I hope you did right there. Because that is the heart of a disciple. And if we don't have that heart, you can call yourself a disciple all day long. Maybe you just have religion. And it's time to confess that and get it out of the way. Religion will not change you. It will not save you. It will not satisfy you. It will not give you peace. It will only frustrate you. These people in Antioch have a genuine encounter with Jesus. Why? Because Barnabas sees the grace of God in action. He sees these people living in newness of life. He doesn't come up to say, hey, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? No, he sees the grace of God active in these people's lives. There is no guessing. Do you know the term or the title Savior? Hear me. Savior is used 26 times in the New Testament and only twice in the Gospels. The term Lord in the New Testament, 653 times. Here's what we do. We underemphasize lordship, and we overemphasize saviorship. And I know that's not a real word. We take lordship, we push it down, and we then say savior. And again, I'm not saying one is more important than the other, because if Jesus is your Savior, he must be Lord. There is no question about that. And if Jesus is Lord over your life, he will save you. 
Barnabas went to Antioch and he saw the grace of God. He sees God working and these people are serving Jesus as Lord. And Barnabas encourages them because that's what his name, his name means. It's son of encouragement. He, he encourages them to continue in their commitment that they, they should pursue Christ as Lord. What takes place as he encourages them, the church grows. For he, verse 24, for he was a good man full of the spirit and of faith and a great many of people were added to the Lord. So when people are dedicated to Jesus as Lord and then they are encouraged by their spiritual leaders, they will win people to Jesus and the church will grow. Church, I, I view the calling of a pastor not through your traditions or your views. Because if I do that, I'll never please any one of you. I'll always fall short. So I've learned this a long time ago, that what has God called me to do? What has God's work, what, not even my idea of what it means to be a pastor. Because your idea of what a pastor should do is completely, probably completely different from what the Bible actually says. Do you know a job description of a pastor is, is recorded in Scripture? It's in Ephesians chapter 4. And then how, what qualifies a person to be a pastor is in 1 Timothy. But here, here's the, here is the job description of a pastor. Very clearly, verse 11, Ephesians 4, 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Do home visits? Nothing wrong with that, but that's not the job title of a pastor. That might be your idea, but that's not the Bible. For the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be tossed and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, that means the body of Christ here, joined and knit together by whatever, by, by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. You know, today the pastor is expected to be the CEO, the COO, the maintenance person, the counselor, the lawyer, the accountant, the chaplain, but that's not our job. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says this, that a pastor is called to train, to equip, to encourage, to teach, to release the church to do the work of the ministry. And that's what, Paul, that's what Barnabas does when he goes to Antioch. When Barnabas goes to Antioch, he doesn't go to the people and say, all right, you're doing it all wrong. All right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to start doing this. And you're just going to watch me. He sees them. He sees the grace of God already working in them. And he encourages them. And that encouragement, what does it do? It encourages that, hey, we're going the right direction. We're doing the right thing. And he steps in, he can encourage them, and then as a result, they dedicate themselves more to the Lord and the church grows. Now church, this is the way it's supposed to work. I want to encourage you to commit yourself deeper to Jesus. And you know what? The deeper you commit yourself to Jesus, that has a profound effect upon the way you lived your life. And that way you live your life is a living testimony. People who are without hope are attracted to people who have this living testimony. See, people aren't attracted to religion. People aren't attracted to fake and phony. People aren't attracted to tradition. 
People are attracted to something genuine, genuine transformation. And you can say you're a Christian all day long, that's fine. But I can tell you this, if something changes in your life, your dedication in the Lord Jesus improves, you're growing closer to him, people don't care what you've said in the past, it's what's taking place with that person right now. Something has happened to them. And they see Jesus in your life, that's what they see. They don't see your church, they don't see your pastor, they don't see your religion, they see Jesus in you. And it, what it does is it causes hope to arise. Lost people aren't attracted to religion. They are attracted to genuine transformation. The church in Antioch experienced growth. Because of that growth, they needed discipleship. Barnabas sends for a recent convert, a proven teacher, a teacher that was proven in Judaism, a recent convert, again, who we refer to as Saul, but becomes the Apostle Paul. So let's go down to verse 25. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Paul. Or Saul, same person. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was for a whole year. They, they did what? Assembled. That means they went to church. I know this message right here is supposed to reach people who are at home right now. So if you're getting it, just keep on getting it, all right? But they assembled with the church and taught a great many of people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Barnabas sends for Paul for the purpose of helping him to disciple all these new converts in Antioch. And remember this, our calling as the church, the church is not me. The church is not this building. The church is you. It's us. The calling of the church, the calling of Holt Assembly of God, every member, every adherent, every regular attender, the purpose of the church is to make disciples. Not converts, and I understand converts is the first step, but it's not the end. It's just the first step in the process. We are called to make disciples. And I understand that process begins with conversion, but what is the goal? Discipleship. Notice in verse 26, it says, In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So what is a disciple? A disciple, if you just look it up in the dictionary, is a learner and a follower. So Jesus was a teacher, and his disciples were his pupils. What was Jesus teaching them? You can say, well, the word of God. Yes and no. Yes, that yes, he was teaching the word of God, but not just to get knowledge and information, because that's what we've boiled discipleship down to. See, there's many people, many churches that have just reduced discipleship about knowing, knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. But that knowledge means zero. I don't care how much of this Bible you know, how much you can quote, it doesn't mean anything if you can't live it. And that's the purpose of discipleship. Discipleship is all about living. Why did the disciples follow Jesus? They wanted to learn how to follow him. And that's the purpose. And this, if we try to do that without the Holy Spirit, that gets nasty. And again, that's why it goes back to salvation, conversion, new birth. Unless you are born again, it is going to be very frustrating to follow Jesus. If we learn about Jesus but fail to live like Jesus, our discipleship has failed. See, we have a discipleship process that is available in our church. Some of you recognize it. Some of you don't recognize it. Some of you recognize it and ignore it. 
But there's a process. The most consistent reason why people stall in their spiritual growth is because a lack of a process. It's a lack of a discipleship process. No spiritual growth. If you aim for nothing, guess what you're going to hit? And it's the same way. If you don't have a a disciplined spiritual process, you are going to be willy-nilly all over the place. You're going to be on YouTube. You're going to be listening to the YouTube preachers. I can't believe some of the, the garbage that I hear. And it's amazing. I, I listened to someone just the other day, and I was like, I, it took me three minutes. I was like, how, how can this have a thousand likes? This is total garbage. This is total false doctrine. Total, he's a false teacher. And people are like, oh, this is so deep. This is so meaningful. And people are just gobbling it up. It's people who eat it up and don't know their Bible. You see, you can have anyone preach and inspire you and make you feel better. Oh, it's exciting. That's revelation. It is just dog poop. We don't, we don't know the difference because we're not discipled. See, some of you don't know that we even have a process available. And choose not to engage in it. Some of you again know there's a process, but choose not to engage in it. Please hear me. Everyone is busy. You are no busier than anyone else. Trust me. As a Christian, you can't be too busy for discipleship. If you're too busy for discipleship, that's a choice. See, you can't choose to believe that discipleship isn't important. If you're a Christian, if you become too busy for discipleship, that will have a negative, lasting impact on your spiritual life. I mentioned this axiom last week. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. We can have a process available, but I can't force you into that process. Discipleship is more about this, and this is what most of us, this is what most of us call discipleship. I read my Bible, or I read a devotion, and I pray, and that's discipleship, and that's a reason why your spiritual life is so unfulfilling, because if that's the measure of discipleship, you're missing the mark. Are those two components important? Absolutely, but if that's all it is, you are severely lacking, and if you're lacking in a discipleship process, you're lacking in growth and maturity. Discipleship requires commitment, and commitment is never convenient. See, if you're serious about growing in your faith, becoming more like Jesus, it will never be convenient. No one's too busy, no one's too important, and no one is too mature and have arrived. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 3.18. I want you to look at this verse and look at process. Look for a process, because there's a process in this verse. 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all, with an open face, beholding as in a glass or a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. We are being changed from glory to glory, by the Spirit of the Lord. That is called a process. You're changing from one glory, one set of maturity, one level, one place in life to the next. Now, how about you? Are you progressing from glory to glory, or are you regressing? Or are you just staying stuck? The Holy Spirit won't change us unless we are submitted and committed to a process of becoming like Jesus. You know, it's kind of like this. I, I tell Jenny this all the time. I know I need to eat better, 
but I don't like to eat better. I like ice cream. I like all the stuff that I'm not supposed to like. But I know my body is telling me some things need to change. And you know, unfortunately, we, we get so stuck in this that we usually don't change till we have to change, right? But if we just listen to our bodies, if we just look at the signs, we'd say, you know what, I need to change some things. It's the same way. If we're, if we're not seeing change, listen, the, ch- the church isn't your problem. The preacher isn't your problem. The worship team is your problem. The programs aren't your problem. You are the problem. And until we can get to that place, we'll never change. None of us are too busy for a process. None of us are too busy for discipleship. And if you are, you're too busy for Jesus. And not in a good way. If the Holy Spirit wants to change people, then why aren't they? Think about this. If, if, if change came down to this, because this is actually sold and promoted in churches in our community. This is the impression. You come to our church, we're going to lay hands on you, and you're going to, you're going to change forever. And churches buy it. They laugh. If, listen, I want you to think about this. If that was the case, don't you think I'd have you down here every Sunday laying hands on you and praying for you? And if that is the desire of the Holy Spirit, and it is, don't you think it would be accomplished already? Then why isn't it accomplished? Because you have a problem. We have a problem. We have a me, myself, and I problem. And there's no preacher, there's no church, and not even the Holy Spirit will overcome that until you submit, because that's not the goal. The Holy Spirit won't force you. You have to submit and commit. So if you aren't becoming more like Jesus and less like your flesh, something's wrong. Stop pretending that nothing, everything's fine, everything's fine. Stop fooling yourself. It doesn't matter if you were changed 5, 10, 15, 20 years, 50 years ago. It doesn't matter. What about today? Are you being changed today? Are you being transformed by the Holy Spirit today? See, most of the struggles we face in Christianity can be traced back to a lack of discipleship. Now, there's nothing wrong with going to a therapist. There's nothing wrong with mental health. I don't think there's anything wrong with that before in my mind. In my, Jenny will tell you this. I've been, I went to a therapist because I thought something was wrong. I thought maybe I needed some medication. And I'm all for it. If I need it, then I'll take it. And so I went two or three times, and she just looked at me and says, you're just too busy. And if you'll, you can keep on paying me, I'll take your $100 an hour, whatever it was, but you're just too busy. And you need to prioritize your life with Jesus. Paul and Barnabas assembled with these new believers an entire year. That means they assembled together. They went to church. And church is an important component of the discipleship process. Assembling consistently is important. It's vital to your growth. And I understand people get sick and there are family vacations, but I wanted to say this, but there is a ripple effect. There is a, a cause and effect in your life when you allow things to take priority in Sunday. It just, it does. Here, here's one of those effects. Parents, grandparents, what is the precedence you're setting for those kids and your grandkids? What are you telling them? This event is more important than this. That's the message they're learning, whether you like it or not. You're, we're creating an unhealthy example for those young ones. If you don't see the value in assembling, our actions speak louder than our words. You can tell your grandkids or your kids when they're growing up, it's important to be in church. It's important to be in church. But you weren't in church. You weren't consistent in church. Christianity is all about community. But you know what? It's amazing how people will handle Christianity like they're, they're monks, like it's a monastic order. 
that we're all going to go find a mountain somewhere, we're all going to sit up on top of a mountain, and it's just me and Jesus. But Christianity is never about a monastic life. Christianity is all about community. And don't you find it ironic? I know those people aren't here today. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but hear me. Isn't it ironic that people say, well, church isn't important, but maybe they won't say it, but their actions show it. Church isn't important. They claim they don't need to go to church, but they want to be in heaven with those same people. I find that ironic. That we want to spend eternity with the people that we don't want to spend an hour and a half with on church every Sunday. Here on earth, there's a reason to assemble, to worship, to pray, to fellowship, to serve. But in heaven, that's a different story. Isn't that incredibly hypocritical? A disciple assembles with other disciples. A disciple serves, a disciple gives, a disciple worships, a disciple prays, a disciple ministers to one another. You can say this, I don't need the church. Well, that's all about you then, isn't it? Because how about this? Maybe someone needs you. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the impression you make? And I can guarantee you there are some of you in here that know this. That you can have a terrible week, a bad week, but when you see so-and-so in church that they've had a bad week and seeing that it is encouraging. Or maybe it's just this. I know this person is going to give me a hug. I know this person is going to say something nice. They're going to uplift me. They're going to encourage me. It's not always about you. And that's the problem. We've, we've bred this into the gospel. And we've bred this into the, in Christianity. It's all about you, and it's not. Listen, when we became Christians, we did this. We all got out our wallets and we all handed our me, myself, and I card over to Jesus. Now, if you have buyer's remorse, that is going to come with a cost. See, when someone tells me this, going to church or being committed to a church isn't necessary, that's not fact, that's opinion. Hebrews 10, 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another. See, it's not about just you. And so much more as you see that day approaching. And I understand that attending church, this isn't the sum total of your discipleship process. Again, just reading your Bible isn't the sum total. Just praying isn't the sum total. Praying, going to church, reading your Bible isn't the sum total. There's more to the discipleship process than those three things. But those are three very important things to do and to do them consistently. See, as a pastor, what is my job to do as a pastor? We read it early. To encourage, to equip, to train, to teach. But if the church doesn't assemble, how can a pastor assess that? I can't do it when you're at home in your robe watching TV. So if, if you don't feel like that's my place or my responsibility, I, I understand that. But then go to, go to your Bible, go to Ephesians chapter 4 and rip out that page. Let's get back to our story, all right? Acts eleven twenty six, And when they had found him being Paul, Barnabas brought him to Antioch. So it was for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many of people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Notice the Bible says this, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Disciple. So a disciple is a learner or follower of Jesus. We're learning to follow Jesus but the word in the Greek is Christianos. And that's, that's a word that just means a follower of Christ. Now, when we look at these terms, when, when we look at the term Christian, when we call ourselves Christian, we wear it like a badge of honor, right? It's an honor and privilege to be called a Christian. 
those at Antioch didn't call themselves Christian. They were called Christian by the residents, the non-Christian, the, the Jewish and Gentile residents of Antioch called them Christians. And it wasn't meant to be a compliment. It was a derogatory statement to be called a Christian. Here's what I mean. Give you a great example. When Paul's for King Agrippa in Acts 26, and by this time Paul's on his way to his death, and he makes this stop to King Agrippa. King Agrippa's like, if he would have just not even appealed to Rome, he would have been set free as a Roman citizen. But Paul appeals to Rome. So he's before King Agrippa, and he's testifying about his faith and, and what has happened and how his life was transformed, how he persecuted Christians, and now how he is a follower of Christ himself. Then in verse 28, then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Agrippa is saying this, your testimony is so convincing, Paul, it's challenged me to become a follower of Jesus. Now you may, again, look at that and say that's a compliment, but again, to know the terminology, how it's used, here, here's, here's the, here it is. Someone, it's like someone coming up to you who is homeless, and they say to you, I'm going to tell you the value of being homeless, the value of you leaving your home. And I don't mean selling your home, I mean just leaving it there, just, and come and be homeless with me. I want to tell you that is so important, so fulfilling. And we would look at it and say, no, it's not. That is degrading. That is derogatory. Why would, and again, I don't mean this poorly against homeless people, but it's absurd. Why, why would we walk away from the homes we own and become homeless? And I want you, that's what, what Agrippa is saying. You're so convincing, but I'm not going to become a Christian. I'm not going to follow a guy that we've crucified. I'm not going to follow a guy that you belong to, you're a slave to, a Christian. You're like your, your leader. That doesn't appeal to me at all. You're convincing, but I just can't do it. Today, we call what we call a Christian isn't what the Bible calls a Christian. It's a conflict of statements. People call themselves a Christian. It's a misleading identification. It's just like a boy saying I'm a girl and a girl saying I'm a boy. They believe Jesus can save them, but they don't serve Jesus as Lord. And in their eyes, Christianity is more about declaring than being. Some of you gave your lives to Jesus years ago. But today, the choices you make, the way you live your life, how you think about this world, doesn't resemble your past commitment. And I want you to think back on this verse and, question, and answer this question for yourself. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Now again, if you have buyer's remorse, you were purchased by the blood of Jesus. But if you want to make a trade, say, Jesus, I would like my life back, there are some severe consequences to that. And I don't know that anyone would do that. And I don't know that any one of us, any person, would actually verbalize that, yet we do it. Are you a disciple? Is Jesus your Savior? Is he the Lord of your life? Do your actions, does your lifestyle testify to your claims? If you were arrested for being a Christian, a learner, a follower of Jesus, would there be enough evidence to try you? Would there be enough evidence to convict you and put you into prison? Matthew 16, 24, 25. Jesus said to his disciples, people are following him, right? If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
A disciple is someone who has a desire to follow Jesus. A disciple understands that following Jesus means this, denying themselves, taking up their own cross. 